Section Three of the Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Captain of the Pole Star, Part Three, September Seventeenth. The Bogey Again. Thank Heaven that I have strong nerves. The superstition of these poor fellows and the circumstantial accounts which they give with the utmost earnestness and self-conviction, would horrify any man not accustomed to their ways. There are many versions of the matter, but the sum total of them all is that something uncanny has been flitting round the ship all night, and that Sandy MacDonald of Peterhead and Lang Peter Williamson of Shetland saw it, as also did Mr. Milne on the bridge. So, having three witnesses, they can make a better case of it than the second mate did. I spoke to Milne after breakfast and told him that he should be above such nonsense, and that as an officer he ought to set the men a better example. He shook his weather-beaten head ominously, but answered with characteristic caution, Maybe I and maybe not, nah, doctor, he said. I didn't call it a ghost. I can't say I preen my faith in sea bogles and the like, though there's a many has claimed to have seen, and that and war. I'm no easy feared, and maybe you ain't blind, but would run a bit cold, Mum, if instead of spearing about in the daylight, ye were with me last night, and seed an awful like shape, white and gruesome, whiles here and whiles there, and it's greeting and calling in the darkness like a bit lammy that has lost its mother. You would nay be say ready to put it down to old wives' clabber, then I'm thinking. I saw it was hopeless to reason with him, so contented myself with begging him as a personal favor to call me up the next time the specter appeared, a request to which he acceded with many ejaculations expressive of his hope that such an opportunity might never arise. As I hoped, the white desert behind us has become broken by many thin streaks of water, which intersected in all directions. Our latitude today was eighty degrees fifty-two minutes north, which shows that there is a strong southerly drift upon the pack. Should the wind continue favorable, it will break up as rapidly as it formed. At present we can do nothing but smoke and wait and hope for the best. I am rapidly becoming a fatalist. When dealing with such uncertain factors as wind and ice, a man can be nothing else. Perhaps it was the wind and sand of the Arabian deserts which gave the minds of the original followers of Mohammed their tendency to bow to kismet. These spectral alarms have a very bad effect upon the captain. I feared that it might excite his sensitive mind and endeavored to conceal the absurd story from him. But unfortunately, he overheard one of the men making an allusion to it, and insisted upon being informed about it. As I had expected, it brought out all his latent lunacy in an exaggerated form. I can hardly believe that this is the same man who discoursed philosophy last night with the most critical acumen and coolest judgment. He is pacing backwards and forwards upon the quarter-deck like a caged tiger, stopping now again to throw out his hands with a yearning gesture 
and stare impatiently out over the ice. He keeps up a continual mutter to himself, and once he called out, But a little time, love, but a little time. Poor fellow, it is sad to see a gallant seaman and accomplished gentleman reduced to such a pass, and to think that imagination and delusion can cow a mind to which real danger was but the salt of life. Was ever a man in such a position as I, between a demented captain and a ghost-seeing mate? I sometimes think I am the only really sane man aboard the vessel, except perhaps the second engineer, who is a kind of ruminant, and would care nothing for all the fiends in the Red Sea, so long as they would leave him alone and not disarrange his tools. The ice is still opening rapidly, and there is every probability of our being able to make a start tomorrow morning. They will think I am inventing when I tell them at home all the strange things that have befallen me. 12 p.m. I have been a good deal startled, though I feel steadier now, thanks to a stiff glass of brandy. I am hardly myself yet, however, as his handwriting will testify. The fact is that I have gone through a very strange experience and am beginning to doubt whether I was justified in branding everyone on board as madmen because they professed to have seen things which did not seem reasonable to my understanding. Shaw, I am a fool to let such a trifle unnerve me, and yet, coming as it does, after all these alarms, it has an additional significance, for I cannot doubt either Mr. Manson's story or that of the mate, now that I have experienced that which I used formerly to scoff at. After all, it was nothing very alarming, a mere sound, and that was all. I cannot expect that anyone reading this, if anyone ever should read it, will sympathize with my feelings or realize the effect which it produced upon me at the time. Supper was over, and I had gone on deck to have a quiet pipe before turning in. The night was very dark, so dark, that standing under the quarter-boat, I was unable to see the officer upon the bridge. I think I have already mentioned the extraordinary silence which prevails in these frozen seas. In other parts of the world, be they ever so barren, there is some slight vibration of the air, some faint hum, be it from the distant haunts of men, or from the leaves of the trees, or the wings of the birds, or even the faint rustle of grass that covers the ground. One may not actively perceive the sound, and yet if it were withdrawn, it would be missed. It is only here in these Arctic seas that stark, unfathomable stillness obtrudes itself upon you in all its gruesome realities. You find your tympanon straining to catch some little murmur, and dwelling eagerly upon every accidental sound within the vessel. In this state, I was leaning against the bulwarks when there arose from the ice almost directly underneath me a cry, sharp and shrill, upon the silent air of the night, beginning, as it seemed to me, at a note such as prima donna never reached, and mounting from that even higher and higher, until it culminated in a long wail of agony, which might have been the last cry of a lost soul. The ghastly scream is still ringing in my ears. Grief, unutterable grief, seemed to be expressed in it, and a great longing, 
and yet through it all there was an occasional wild note of exultation. It shrilled out from close beside me, and yet as I glared into the darkness I could discern nothing. I waited some little time, but without hearing any repetition of the sound, so I came below, more shaken than I have ever been in my life before. As I came down the companion, I met Mr. Milne coming up to relieve the watch. Well, doctor, he said, maybe that old wives clabber, Tay, huh? Did you not hear it, skirling? Maybe that's a superstition. What do you think now? I was obliged to apologize to the honest fellow and acknowledge that I was as puzzled by it as he was. Perhaps tomorrow things may look different. At present, I dare hardly write all that I think. Reading it again in days to come, when I have shaken off all these associations, I should despise myself for having been so weak. September 18th Passed a restless and uneasy night, still haunted by that strange sound. The captain does not look as if he has had much repose either, for his face is haggard and his eyes bloodshot. I have not told him of my adventure last night, nor shall I. He is already restless and excited, standing up, sitting down, and apparently utterly unable to keep still. A fine lead appeared in the pack this morning, as I had expected, and we were able to cast off our ice anchor and steam about twelve miles in a west-southwesterly direction. We were then brought to a halt by a great flow as massive as any which we have left behind us. It bars our progress completely, so we can do nothing but anchor again and wait till it breaks up, which it will probably do within twenty-four hours, if the wind holds. Several bladder-nosed seals were seen swimming in the water, and one was shot, an immense creature more than eleven feet long. They are fierce, pugnacious animals, and are said to be more than a match for a bear. Fortunately, they are slow and clumsy in their movements, so that there is little danger in attacking them upon the ice. The captain evidently does not think we have seen the last of our troubles, though why he should take a gloomy view of the situation is more than I can phantom, since everyone else on board considers that we have had a miraculous escape and are sure now to reach the open sea. I suppose you think it's all right now, doctor, he said, as we sat together after dinner. I hope so, I answered. We mustn't be too sure, and yet no doubt you are right. We'll all be in the arms of our true loves before long, lad, won't we? But we mustn't be too sure. We mustn't be too sure. He sat silent a little, swinging his legs thoughtfully backwards and forwards. Look here, he continued. It's a dangerous place, this, even at its best. A treacherous, dangerous place. I have known men cut off very suddenly in a land like this. A slip would do it sometimes, a single slip, and down you go through a crack, and only a bubble on the green water to show where it was that you sank. It's a queer thing, he continued with a nervous laugh, but all the years I've been in this country I never once thought of making a will, not that I have anything to leave in particular, but still when a man is exposed to danger. He should have everything arranged and ready, don't you think so? Certainly, I answered, 
wondering what on earth he was driving at. He feels better for knowing it's all settled, he went on. Now, if anything should ever befall me, I hope that you will look after things for me. There is very little in the cabin, but such as it is, I should like it to be sold, and the money divided in the same proportion as the oil money among the crew. The chronometer I wish you to keep yourself as some slight remembrance of our voyage. Of course, this is all a mere precaution, but I thought I would take the opportunity of speaking to you about it. I suppose I might rely upon you, if there were any necessity. Most assuredly, I answered, and since you are taking this step, I may as well. You, you, he interrupted, you're all right. What the devil is the matter with you? There, I didn't mean to be peppery, but I don't like to hear a young fellow that has hardly began life speculating about death. Go up on the deck and get some fresh air in your lungs instead of talking nonsense in the cabin and encouraging me to do the same. The more I think of this conversation of ours, the less do I like it. Why should the man be settling his affairs at the very time when we seem to be emerging from all danger? There must be some method in his madness. Can it be that he contemplates suicide? I remember that upon one occasion he spoke in a deeply reverent manner of the heinousness of the crime of self-destruction. I shall keep my eye upon him, however, and though I cannot obtrude upon the privacy of his cabin, I should at least make a point of remaining on deck as long as he stays up. Mr. Milne pooh-poohs my fears and said it is only the skipper's little way. He himself takes a very rosy view of the situation. According to him, we shall be out of the ice by the day after tomorrow. Pass Juan Mayen two days after that, and sight Shetland in a little more than a week. I hope that he may not be too sanguine. His opinion may be fairly balanced against the gloomy precautions of the captain, for he is an old and experienced seaman and weighs his words well before uttering them. The long impending catastrophe has come at last. I hardly know what to write about it. The captain is gone. He may come back to us again alive. But I fear me, I fear me. It is now seven o'clock in the morning of the 19th of September. I have spent the whole night traversing the great ice floe in front of us with a party of seamen and the hope of coming upon some trace of him, but in vain. I shall try to give some account of the circumstances which attended upon his disappearance. Should anyone ever chance to read these words which I put down, I trust they will remember that I do not write from conjecture or from hearsay, but that I, a sane and educated man, am describing accurately what actually occurred before my very eyes. My inferences are my own, but I shall be answerable for the facts. The captain remained in excellent spirits after the conversation which I have recorded. He appeared to be nervous and impatient, however, frequently changing his position and moving his limbs in an aimless, choreic way, which is characteristic of him at times. In a quarter of an hour he went upon deck seven times only to descend after a few hurried paces. I followed him each time, for there was something about his face 
which confirmed my resolution of not letting him out of my sight. He seemed to observe the effect which his movements had produced, for he endeavored by an overdone hilarity, laughing boisterously at the smallest of jokes, to quiet my apprehensions. After supper he went on the poop once more, and I with him. The night was dark and very still, save for the melancholy soughing of the wind among the spars. A thick cloud was coming up from the northwest, and the ragged tentacles which it threw out in front of it were drifting across the face of the moon, which only shone now and again through a rift in the rack. The captain paced rapidly backwards and forwards, and then seeing me still dogging him, he came across and hinted that he thought I should be better below, which, I need hardly say, had the effect of strengthening my resolution to remain on deck. I think he forgot about my presence after this, for he stood silently leaning over the taffrail and peering out across the great desert of snow, part of which lay in shadow, while part glittered mistily in the moonlight. Several times I could see by his movements that he was referring to his watch, and once he muttered a short sentence, of which I could only catch the one word, ready. I confess to having felt an eerie feeling creeping over me as I watched the loom of his tall figure through the darkness, and noted how completely he fulfilled the idea of a man who was keeping a tryst. A tryst with whom? Some vague perception began to dawn upon me as I pieced one fact with another, but I was utterly unprepared for the sequel. By the sudden intensity of his attitude, I felt that he saw something. I crept up behind him. He was staring with an eager, questioning gaze at what seemed to be a wreath of mist, blown swiftly in a line with the ship. It was a dim, nebulous body, devoid of shape, sometimes more, sometimes less apparent, as the light fell on it. The moon was dimmed in its brilliancy at the moment by a canopy of thinnest clouds, like the coating of an anemone. Coming, last coming, cried the skipper, in a voice of unfathomable tenderness and compassion, like one who soothes the beloved one by some favor long looked for, and as pleasant to bestow as to receive. What followed happened in an instant. I had no power to interfere. He gave one spring to the top of the bulwarks, and another which took him on to the ice, almost to the feet of the pale misty figure. He held out his hand as if to clasp it, and so ran into the darkness with outstretched arms and loving words. I stood rigid and motionless, straining my eyes after his retreating form, until his voice died away in the distance. I never thought to see him again, but at that moment the moon shone out brilliantly through a chink in the cloudy heaven, and illuminated the great field of ice. Then I saw his dark figure already a very long way off, running with prodigious speed across the frozen plain. That was the last glimpse which we caught of him, perhaps the last we ever shall. A party was organized to follow him, and I accompanied them. But the men's heart were not in the work, and nothing was found. Another will be formed within a few hours. I can hardly believe I have not been dreaming or suffering from some hideous nightmare as I write these things down.
7.30 p.m. Just returned, deadbeat, and utterly tired out from a second unsuccessful search for the captain. The flow is of enormous extent, for though we have traversed at least twenty miles of its surface, there has been no sign of its coming to an end. The frost has been so severe of late that the overlying snow is frozen as hard as granite. Otherwise, we might have had the footsteps to guide us. The crew are anxious that we should cast off and steam round the floe, and so to the southward, for the ice has opened up during the night and the sea is visible upon the horizon. They argue that Captain Craigie is certainly dead, and that we are all risking our lives to no purpose by remaining when we have an opportunity of escape. Mr. Milne and I have had the greatest difficulty in persuading them to wait until tomorrow night, and have been compelled to promise that we will not under any circumstances delay our departure longer than that. We propose, therefore, to take a few hours' sleep, and then to start upon a final search. September 20th, Evening I crossed the ice this morning with a party of men, exploring the southern part of the flow, while Mr. Milne went off in a northerly direction. We pushed on for ten or twelve miles without seeing a trace of any living thing except a single bird, which fluttered a great way over our heads, and which by its flight I should judge to have been a falcon. The southern extremity of the ice field tapered away into a long narrow split which projected out into the sea. When we came to the base of this promontory the men halted, but I begged them to continue to the extreme end of it that we might have the satisfaction of knowing that no possible chance had been neglected. We had hardly gone a hundred yards before MacDonald of Peterhead cried out that he saw something in front of us and began to run. We all got a glimpse of it and ran too. At first it was only a vague darkness against the white ice, but as we raced along together it took the shape of a man, and eventually of the man of whom we were in search. He was lying face downward upon a frozen bank. Many little crystals of ice and feathers of snow had drifted on him as he lay, and sparkled upon his dark seaman's jacket. As we came up, some wandering puff of wind caught these tiny flakes in its vortex, and they whirled up into the air, partially descended again, and then, caught once more in the current, sped rapidly away in the direction of the sea. To my eyes it seemed but a snowdrift, but many of my companions averred that it started up in the shape of a woman, stooped over the corpse and kissed it, and then hurried away across the flow. I have learned never to ridicule any man's opinion, however strange it may seem. Sure it is that Captain Nicholas Craigie had met with no painful end, for there was a bright smile upon his blue-pinched features, and his hands were still outstretched as though grasping at the strange visitor which had summoned him away into the dim world that lies beyond the grave. We buried him that same afternoon, with the ship's ensign around him and a thirty-two-pound shot at his feet. I read the burial service, while the rough sailors wept like children, for there were many who owed much to his kind heart, and who showed now the affection which his strange ways had repelled during his lifetime. He went off the grating with a dull, sullen splash, 
and as I looked into the green water, I saw him go down, 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 until he was but a little flickering patch of white hanging upon the outskirts of eternal darkness. Then even that faded away, and he was gone. There he shall lie with his secret and his sorrows, and his mystery all still buried in his breast, until that great day when the sea shall give up its dead, and Nicholas Craigie come out from among the ice with a smile upon his face, and his stiffened arms outstretched in greeting. I pray that his lot may be a happier one in that life than it has been in this. I shall not continue my journal. Our road home lies plain and clear before us, and the great ice field will soon be but a remembrance of the past. It will be some time before I get over the shock produced by recent events. When I began this record of our voyage, I little thought of how I should be compelled to finish it. I am writing these final words in the lonely cabin, still starting at times and fancying. I hear the quick nervous steps of the dead man upon the deck above me. I entered his cabin tonight, as was my duty, to make a list of his effects in order that they might be entered in the official log. All was it had been during my previous visit, save that the picture which I have described as having hung at the end of his bed had been cut out of its frame as with a knife and was gone. With this last link in a strange chain of evidence, I closed my diary of the voyage of the Pole Star. Note by Dr. John McAllister Ray, Sr. I have read over the strange events connected with the death of the captain of the Pole Star, as narrated in the journal of my son. That everything occurred exactly as he describes it, I have the fullest confidence, and indeed the most positive certainty, for I know him to be a strong-nerved and unimaginative man with the strictest regard for veracity. Still, the story is, on the face of it, so vague and so improbable that I was long opposed to its publication. Within the last few days, however, I have had independent testimony upon the subject, which throws a new light upon it. I had run down to Edinburgh to attend a meeting of the British Medical Association when I chanced to come across Dr. P., an old college chum of mine, now practicing at Saltash, in Devonshire. Upon my telling him of this experience of my son's, he declared to me that he was familiar with the man, and proceeded, to my no small surprise, to give me a description of him, which tallied remarkably well with that given in the journal, except that he depicted him as a younger man. According to his account, he had been engaged to a young lady of singular beauty residing upon the Cornish coast. During his absence at sea, his betrothed had died under circumstances of peculiar horror. End of Section 3